0: All right, guys, so today we're starting our series in 2 Samuel. I'm going to be starting from 6. I'm going to get into the text, and then from there, we'll sort of go back and figure out how we got here, right? So I'm going to ask you guys, I'm glad that, that, we, that we had a little more extra time, because usually when I preach, you guys tend to listen very slowly. So I'm going to ask you guys to try to listen a little faster today. No, I'm just <laughs> so, I'm So Second Samuel, uh, yeah, so I mean, our title is Essentials. For worship. Uh, Verse 1 says, David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the Ark of God. And Ahio went before the Ark. And David and all the house of Judah were celebrating before the Lord with songs and with lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the Ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled." And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah, and that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord Lord that day, and he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark to the the ark of the Lord into the city of David, but David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, and the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. And it was told King da- It was told it, and it was told King David. The Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all of his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with sound of, horn, of, the, of the horn. As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw David, uh, King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. And they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place, inside of the tent that David pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts and distributed among all the people, the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat and a cake of raisins to each one. Then all the people departed each to his own, to his house and David returned to bless his household. But Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. And David said to Michael, I was before the Lord, who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord. And I will celebrate before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this. And I will be abased in your eyes. But by the the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. And Michael, the the daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. So I'm going to just ask you to all join me in prayer. Lord, we come before you. And we ask you that you may speak to us, Lord. Lord, we pray that we may be convicted of your holiness. And at the same time, understand your desire to be close to us, Lord. I pray, Lord, that we may recognize that as you call us towards yourself, we have no business being there. But by the blood of Jesus, we can come boldly before the throne of grace. I pray that we may help, you, help us to value who you are and what you have done for us. And I pray that you may reveal yourself, that we respond to your holiness and your greatness with humility and surrender. And we ask you all this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. So, oh man, where did I put it? So the big idea is that true worship starts with a recognition of God's holiness and continues as we respond to his holiness with reverence and surrender. I'll say that again. True worship starts with a recognition of God's holiness and continues as we respond to his holiness with reverence and surrender. So we ended off uh, last time in 1 Samuel 30, and a couple of things have happened since then. And I know that Keith is going to go back probably next week and, and, and uh, talk about some stuff in the past. But in chapter 31, Saul and Jonathan were killed. And David and the people mourned his death. After that, David was crowned as the king of Judah, which is just one out of the 12 tribes. And um, uh, Saul's son, Ishbosheth was crowned as the king of Israel. After he was killed... Israel declared their loyalty to David, which was fulfilling the prophecy and the early anointing of David that happened years before that when God had anointed him as the future king of Israel. David continued to battle against the Philistines and he would inquire of the Lord and the Lord will lead him where and when to go to battle. And he will also lead him when not to go to battle. And David was obedient to the Lord, and because he was obedience to the Lord, he was successful in his battles. So as David starts his rule, he recognizes his need for the presence of God. So I also believe that David's heart was recognizing that he is not the king of Israel, but that God is the king of Israel. And his heart was that God would rule through him. So he thinks about bringing the Ark of the Covenant back to the people and placing it in the center of Israel in Jerusalem. So, about se- the Ark of the Covenant had been gone for about seventy years at that time. It was stolen by the Philistines in the middle of a battle. During that time, Israel had turned their backs on God, and without going to battle, they decided to bring the Ark, of the, Philis- the, Ark of the Ark of the Philistines. Sorry, the Ark of the Covenant into the battle because God's presence had brought uh, victory to them in the past. But they had turned from God, and his glory had already departed from Israel. So when they went in trying to bring this good luck charm, they were defeated, and the ark was stolen. The Philistines put the ark in in, in the, the temple of Dagon. And, I mean, there was judgments and funny stories. If you guys want to read it about Dagon and the temple. Um, and judgments and plagues came around the people, and the people of the Philistines, they hated the ark. And they sent it off on the new cart. And they had... Uh, uh, allowed, they had put two cows to, to send it off. And they said, man, if this was the God of the Isra- the Israelites that, put, that has judged us, then the, 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 these cows are going to lead them to Beth Shemesh. And that's exactly where the cows went by God's providence. And the people of Beth Shemesh were so excited, they saw the Ark of the Covenant. And they decided to look inside of the Ark. And 70 men were struck dead because of that. Because they were not to look inside the Ark. So what is the Ark of the Covenant? I know we've talked about it before, and I'm trying to get to talk about it quickly. So the Ark of the Covenant is at the center of this story. It was a wooden chest that was overlaid with gold, and on the cover there were two golden cherubim, which are angels, and with their wings spread towards each other. And this represented the presence of God, as we see different parts of Scripture that the, in the throne in the throne of God there are angels surrounding the presence the, the throne of God, and in between the angel was called the mercy seat, and this represented the throne of God, and it's also a place where the blood of the of the sacrifice was sprinkled when the sacrifice was made for Israel's sin. On the inside, there was a jar of manna, which was a substance that rained from the earth that uh, the, the Israelites, Israelites used to make bread when they had no food, had God provided for them in, when they were in the wilderness. And there was the tablets where God wrote the Ten Commandments. And there was also Aaron's budding staff, which I'm not going to get too much into, but is what God used to declare that the Levites were going to be the, priest, the priestly uh, uh, tribe and it was just it was a miracle cuz a dead stick overnight uh, budded almonds. So anyway, another word for the ark of the covenant is the ark of testimony and God has revealed much about himself in this ark. One Bible teacher says that the ark represented God's rule, God's reconciliation and God's revelation. His rule is that in in the word of God it says that he is enthroned above the cherubim. And he this is the throne of God, his rule. Also, uh his reconciliation is that in that the mercy seat, the people his the people were reconciled to him by the sacrifice and the sprinkling of the blood there. And also his revelation is that he gave us his word. He gave us the Ten Commandments, He gave us the law, He gave us His Word, and God continues or has revealed Himself to us through His Word. So I'm trying to go fast, so I won't spend too much time on this. Hopefully you guys are able to catch up. One thing uh that the Lord told Moses in Exodus 25, he said. They, uh, speaking about by the Ark of the Covenant, I, there I will meet with you, and there I will speak to you. So God has revealed Himself through every part of the Tabernacle. If you guys are interested, have a conversation with me. It's one of my favorite topics of the Bible, and I'll chew your ear off. No, That's good. But anyway, it's a very, it's amazing. This, the, the Tabernacle is amazing. I'm not going to get too much into it. So the Tabernacle was a tent where where God's ple- presence dwelt. And the word tabernacle itself means dwell. So God dwelt in the midst of his people. The plan was what he told Moses was that He to make this tent and he had to him how all the tribes would be around him and he would dwell in the midst of his people. And he would rule his people from the midst of them. And, and uh, it's also the place where the sacrifices were made for the people's sin. So we see here the beauty and the life in the tabernacle in the ark of God is where the presence of God was. But we also see the severity of God here. We see the holiness of God. If the priests were unclean, when they would go make sacrifices, they would drop dead in his presence. And and he had to make sacrifices for himself even before he made sacrifices for his people. So we get to see a lot about God here. We get to see the things where he draws us close to himself. but We also get to see the things that he's far away from us. And God's mercy was seen in his constant warnings to Israel. God told them in the book of Leviticus and Deuteronomy, many times he would say, Do this this way, for I, the Lord, your God, am holy. He directed them and he warned them about many things. Like I said, when the 70 people were killed in Beth Shemesh, God had already told his people, do not touch and do not look into the ark. So that's his mercy there. And they died because of their disobedience. So uh, jumping back into the story, the, the, the ark, after all that, was sent to the house of Obed-Edom where we remained there for a long time. Uh, the ark remained in Obed-Edom's house during Saul's reign. So Saul never felt the need to call for the presence of God. So when David called for the ark, this was a huge deal. The ark had been, like I said, the symbol of the presence of God for so many years for the Israelites. He, he lived in the midst of them. He ruled and he spoke to Moses from there. So it was a big deal when, when, when David called for this. And it was a big celebration. I'm sorry. I should have had that picture the whole time I was talking about it. I'll give you guys a second. I think it's a good representation. I'll take a drink of water while you look at it. But anyway, so David sent for the ark. Verse 1, it says, David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal, Judah, to bring up from there the, the ark of God, which is called the na- by the name of the Lord of Hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim, and they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uza and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God, and Ahio went before the ark. So there was about thirty people invited to the celebration. And the parallel account in, in First Chronicles says that David had invited all the leaders of Israel and all the priests and the Levites over all the kingdom. So why did David want the Ark of the Covenant there? As I said, he had established Jerusalem as the city and the town where he will reign from. And it was David's desire that the Lord will reign through him. Yahweh was the king of Israel. And he wanted to give the Lord his rightful place. God always desired to dwell in the midst of His people. As I said before, in the original tabernacle, He tabernacled or dwelt in the middle of of the people. And God gave Moses the plans uh, for all the tribes to be around Him. And God and David desired to do the same for God to be in, in the middle of everything. Um, so everyone was celebrating. The Ark of the Covenant was coming back to Israel after seven years, seventy years, uh, and. And in verse 5, it says, And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and with lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it. And the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah. And God struck him down there because of his error. And he died there beside the ark. I know where the first time I read this story, I was kind of confused. I'm like, I don't understand. Why would God do that? I mean, it's kind of, you know, it's a reaction. You know, he's, the, the, the ark stumbles. He does, you don't want the ark to, to hit the floor. You know, it could get all muddy and dirty and stuff. But as I, as I continued to read the word of God and understand and get to know who God was and his holiness, I was like, oh, okay, I get it. So we see that uh, Uzzah may have had good intentions, but I think that sometimes we comfort ourselves too much with our good intentions. And both David and Uzzah had good intentions, but their actions were wrong and they were disobedient. Verse 8 says, And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. And that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David. But David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom. One interesting thing about Uzza and Ahio. Uzza and Ahio were the sons of Abinadab. So the ark was in their house for so many years. And, you know, maybe I'm, I can imagine they came home from school, maybe they took their book bag off and just threw it on the ark. Or, you know, they just leaned on it or they had to tie the sneakers, maybe they put on top of it. I'm, I'm joking about it. But it seems that, that the ark became a little too familiar with, for them. It became too common for them. And I think that sometimes we are the same with God. I mean, we know, we know Jesus died for our sins. We know that we can come boldly before the throne of grace. But God does not stop being holy. And I think in our minds, in our hearts, we do. I'm going a little bit ahead of myself. But we do well to look at God completely. I don't want to go ahead of myself. I'll talk more about that later. But they send it on the new cart and they stumble on the threshing floor. I'm going to try to explain briefly the threshing floor because for so many years I didn't know what this was. So they were uh, they, the grain. The sheaves of grain were placed on, on, on the floor on the smooth surface, and they would have the oxen trample all over them to, to remove the the like the, the 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 husk from the grain that was that was uh, good for food. And then after, and they would either trample on them or use like this heavy sled thing. And then after that, they would take a fork and lift it up, and the 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 husk would come up. And the wind would blow them away, and what was left there was was the grain. So we see many examples of this in the Bible. The threshing floor, I think it shows up about 12 times, I think it is. And every time it shows up, it's a symbol of judgment. It's a symbol of the separation of what's pure and what's not pure. What's of God and what's not of God. These husks were then gathered, and they were burned because they were useless. Only the grain was useful. So God was separating the wheat from the chaff on the threshing floor of Nacon here. And what David was doing was not in obedience to God, and God wanted no part of it. What David was doing here was chaff. It was not grain. It's weird, but anyway, yeah. So in Numbers uh, uh, 4.15, they were told, as I said earlier, that they were not to touch the Ark of the Covenant. But uh, Uzzah felt like it was okay for him to do that. The, everything, everything that they did, even bringing on a new cart, uh, it was you know log- logistical, it was logical, uh, but it wasn't what God had said. And I think sometimes we need to... I'm not saying that God does, doesn't want us to be logical, but we always need to consult with the Word of God. And with God's Word goes above anything that we find logical or anything else that has worked in the world in the past. Amen? So... Um, R.C. Sproul said that he was trying to, speaking of Uzzah, he was trying to preserve the throne of God from being desecrated by mud. But the presumptuous sin of Uzzah was this. He assumed that his hands were less polluted than the dirt. There was nothing about the earth that would desecrate the throne of God. Uzzah was a sinner just like every human being on this earth, and he was not worthy to touch the ark. David became angry, and I can imagine David being like, God, what? I'm doing this for you, probably, or, you know, look what I've done for you. I've won so many battles for you, and you're going to come and do this? You've embarrassed me. The Bible doesn't say this. I'm just saying I can imagine this being a, maybe a conversation he had with God. But what was Saul's failure? Saul's failure was this: being disobedient to God and doing what he thought what's logical above what God told him to do. And David failed with the same thing here. Samuel said to Saul, "Has has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. God desires our obedience above everything else. And, and verse uh, verse, Gordon, verse, 9 says, David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? This was probably a genuine question. He wanted the ark to come, and he was just like, man, he was probably defeated, being like, man, how can I, how can I do this? And, you know, but one thing that we see here is that the the same hand that struck Uzzah is the same hand that blessed Obed-Edom. So the Bible doesn't say much about Obed-Edom, but I, I'm willing to bet that somehow he treated the ark with the respect that it need to be, needed to be treated. One second. Verse 11 says, and the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom three months, and the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. And it was told King David that the Lord had blessed Obed, the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because the ark of, because of the Ark of God. So God went and brought up the Ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David rejoicing. And when those who bore the Ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an oxen and a fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod so David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with, with, of, of, of of, with sound of the horn. So um, in, in the book of 1 Chronicles, the parallel text, it gives some more uh, uh, detail to this. And David, uh, David had told the, the priest, consecrate yourself, you and your brothers, so that you may bring up the ark of the Lord, the God, the God of Israel, to the place that I have prepared for it. Because you did not carry it the first time, the Lord our God broke out against us because we did not seek him according to the rule. So the priests and the Levites consecrated themselves to bring up the ark of the Lord, the God of Israel. And the Levites carried the ark of God on their shoulders with poles as Moses had commanded according to his word. David said, we did not seek him, speaking of God, according to the rule. David, the same David that inquired of the Lord for every battle, did not inquire of the Lord to know how to, how to transport the symbol of his presence. And because of that, because of David, he suffered a great embarrassment and Uzzah lost his life. But it seems here that David, I don't know if he consulted one of the Levites or he just went straight to the law, but he was able to figure out that what he did was wrong. And the Bible doesn't say that he repented, but I think we see a heart of repentance here as we see the change in his life. As he said, I'm going to do this the way that God wants me to do this now. In 1 uh, in, uh, Chronicles also in uh, 15, 16, it says, David also commanded the chiefs of the Levites to appoint their brothers as the singers who should play loudly on musical instruments, on harps and lyres and cymbals to raise sounds of joy. And verse 28 says, so all of Israel brought up the ark of the covenant of the Lord with shouting, with the sound of horn trumpets and cymbals, and made loud music on harps and lyres. So, um, <laughs> is that a typo? Oh, no, anyway. So, anybody that doesn't like the drums, I'm just kidding. I'm, like, I'm just joking. Nah. But we see, I I I I read these because I'm a worship leader. I'm just kidding. I I I read these because I think it gives us a a a bigger picture of what it was like. This celebration that we talked about, the thirty thousand, this was just as big, or maybe even bigger. So I like when I read the Bible, I want to paint a picture and bring myself into the scene. This was a great celebration again. So David had consulted the Lord, and he figured out how God wanted to do this. So this is an interesting story. And when I read the word of God, I have these questions that I ask myself. Number one, I ask myself, what can I learn about God through this text? I also ask myself, what can I learn about my need for him in this text? And I ask myself, what can I learn about how I can relate to him? Or how can I have a relationship with him? I ask myself more questions, but these are some basic questions. And I think that in this text, we see uh, an interesting point, And this is probably where I'm going to probably be here for another half hour just kidding i'm gonna try to go fast but anyway we see in the bible there are great tensions in the word of god that we wrestle with there are things in the bible where the bible seems to say says something and says something else and they seem to i say seem to because they're not but they seem to in that contradict each other and we have to wrestle trying to figure out where do we stand with this like when we read about god's sovereignty versus man's responsibility that's a tension right is god sovereign or is man responsible for his own actions or when we pray is it according to our faith or is it according to god's will another tension and man i remember josh brought up a good tension i don't remember what it was i was going to use as an example i probably should have wrote it down but anyway we have these tensions in the word of god that we wrestle with and this tension i'm going to speak about is what theologians call god's transcendence versus god's eminence and i really don't care if you remember the words but we're going to talk about what they mean and hopefully we can remember that so briefly his transcendence means that god is outside of our full experience perception or grasp a big part of that is his holiness which means that he is completely other in other words there's there's two uh two types of uh things that exist in this world there's god And then there's everything else that exists besides God. He is separated. He is completely other. Uh, The holiness of God is his unparalleled majesty and his incomparable, he's an incomparable being. He is blameless, faultless, unblemished, and morally pure. But also he is separated from anything that's common and he's just set aside from everything else. God's holiness is one of those things that I feel like, as I continue to get into the Word, I get to understand more and more how big He is, how great He is, and how different He is from humanity. And then when we speak about His eminence, oh well, I'm adding to His His transcendence, He's omnipresent, which He's everywhere. He's all He's omnipotent, all powerful. He's omniscient, which is all knowing. His ways, in a sense, are unknowable. He is so much greater and so much different than who we are as people. And although he's unknowable, the Bible tells us that we can know him. (laughs) The Bible tells us that he makes himself knowable to us. He makes his truth graspable to us. God is close to us. And we get to experience him. We get to know him. He comforts us. He brings us joy. He brings us peace. Our, part of our mission here is to know God, and we must know him accurately. Now, what happens is that we all tend to lean more towards one side, more towards the grandeur of God and his holiness or his, his, his eminence, which is his closeness and how we get to experience in life. So, and this, I, I always see these weird pictures like, like, you know, God allows me to see things, and I'm going to try to describe what I see. It might not make sense to you, but hopefully it makes sense to somebody. I'm going to see almost like a tent, right? And it's like, you know, it's with the pole standing up and we have these both sides. And I think that in, what most people tend to do is, is, to, is to loosen the side that they don't feel comfortable with. So if I love having intimacy with God, but I, you know, I, I struggle with, with accepting his, his holiness and his righteousness and his demand on our lives, I tend to lose that side. Or if I lean more towards his, you know, anyway, I'm not going to explain, but you guys, the opposite side. So I, I, what I see is that as we pull on both sides, it's almost like instead of the tent being like this, it's almost life gets breathed into that one side and life gets breathed into the other side and it becomes almost like a living thing more than just a dead tent. It sounds corny. I see it in my mind. I don't know. I'm just going to explain it like that. So I think that we do well to pull on those both sides, to grow deeper, to get into scripture on those both sides and not be comfortable with our tendencies because God is both holy and he is close. You know what I'm saying? So I went off my notes, hopefully I can find myself. We are to fear the Lord. And the Bible says that that's the beginning of wisdom. And God shows us in his mercy and kindness, as I said earlier, in his warnings, God's judgment is in his word, and it's not there to frighten us so we can run away, but it's there so that we would fear him and know how we can approach him. That we may come to him on our knees as creation before the creator, surrendered to him. And we, rec- we need to recognize that his ways are not our ways, and his judgments are not our judgments. He is holy, and he is set apart. He is totally other than us. But God, again, has always desired for us to be close to him. In Genesis, Adam and Eve walked with God in the garden until sin came into the world. In Exodus, God told Pharaoh to let his people go so they may come and worship him and that, they may tabern- that he may tabernacle with them. As I said earlier, it was to dwell with them, and he dwelt in the midst of them. And it was only by the sacrifice of animals... That they were able to approach because the shedding of blood, uh, with the shedding of blood, that was that was a cleansing of their sin, where their sin was covered, but that was a foreshadow of Jesus who would come and remove our sins. So this uh, this uh, it says in, in thirteen it said when when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fat and animal. Because he realized that sacrifice was necessary in order to approach God. Our sin is so bad that something has to die because of it. And it's supposed to be us. But God had established a system where an animal can be the substitute and the sacrifice and will take our place. And ultimately, this foreshadow is about Jesus, who took our place on the cross, died for our sin, took the wrath of God. Now, God was not going to be less Loving in order to be more righteous or less righteous in order to be more loving. But he was completely loving and completely righteous. He, he, Jesus came and took the wrath of God that we deserve so that we can be able to draw close to the Lord. You know what I'm saying? So God is both righteous and loving. He is both holy and set apart and close to us. Jesus gave his life for our sin and the veil was torn. And for those of us who approach to him by faith and repentance, we can come to him. And for those that don't, we'll receive and experience the judgment of God. We can come to Jesus, we can receive the righteousness of Jesus and only come to God clothed in his righteousness. So if we do not understand these two things... We cannot really worship God. We cannot really worship God if we don't see him as this holy God, this great God, this amazing God that's so different than us. But yet, how, how this God desires for us to be close to him. We cannot, uh, uh, it, without a proper understanding, we, like I said, we tend to go to one, one uh, both ways. We can tend to be far from God and, and, and f- not fear him, but be afraid of him. Or we can go to the other side where we treat them as too common. And we don't want either of those two things. So we do well to pull on those two. And we just continue to pull on the two things that bring bring tension. Charles Spurgeon said of this subject, he said, I can admire the solemn and stately language of worship that recognizes the greatness of God, but it will not warm my heart or express my soul until it has, until it has also blended therewith the joy the joyful nearness of that perfect love that casts out fear and ventures to speak with our father in heaven as a child speaks with his father on earth my brother no veil remains another great uh, uh, quote that i've used before is from tozer he said the greatness of god rouses fear within us but his goodness encourages us not to be afraid of him. To fear and not be afraid, that is the paradox of faith. And also uh, in, Revelation, in, in Revelation 1, the Bible talks about uh, that Jesus has the stars of the seven churches in his right hand. And when John falls before him as dead, he puts that same right hand on his shoulder, showing his power, but yet how he is uh, close to us. Eugene Peterson calls this, uh, when we can get a hold of this this tension, resurrection worship. In Matthew 28, speaking of Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, after Jesus had resurrected, they worshiped him at his feet, and they took hold of his feet. He said, on its own, bowing at the feet of Jesus is not resurrection worship. And in the same way, holding the feet of Jesus in closeness is not itself An act of resurrection worship. But it's the two together. The act of reverence and intimacy need each other. The reverence needs an infusion of intimacy. Lest it become a cool and detached aesthetic. And the intimacy needs to be suffused in reverence. Lest it becomes a gushy emotion. So in society today, I think we lean more towards the close to God thing. And even uh, with a lot of people, you know, a lot of people's belief of God is almost like we can be close to him without him being holy. And just the same way that the judgment fell upon Uzzah one day, if they don't come to Jesus, they're going to experience the same judgment that Uzzah did. I mean, you know, actually worse than ultimate judgment. Uzzah lost his life, but we don't know about his eternity. But without, without repentance and coming to God then he's going to be uh, uh, th- these people are going to, are going to experience the wrath of god and i think that one thing that's important i think we need to start with the holiness of god before we go to the intimacy with god because if we don't intimacy with god will be cheap if we don't realize how other and how holy and how separate and how righteous god is then what our closeness to god would not mean it would not mean anything we get to be before the throne of God, a place that none of us deserve to be. You know what I'm saying? So I think we do well to start with seeing how holiness, and yet he desires to have a relationship with us. You guys are listening very slow. I'm letting you guys know. Just kidding. <laughs> But anyway, so we see here that God wants to be close and he wants to bless us and we want to invite his presence into every aspect of our lives in our, in our, in our, in our homes, in our work life and all that. And remember, his, if his, his presence is his rule, his, uh, oh, I just missed, his rule, his, not redemption, anyway. We want to invite him to rule in our lives, to be the redeemer of our lives, and the one that we go to. Uh, David in his worship. He, he displayed some humility here. His hum- first part where he uh, expressed humility. Was that he recognized his failure. As I said earlier. And he turned from his error. And he came to the Lord. And in, in Psalm 24. Where, where many believe that he wrote this Psalm. During this, uh, this procession. He said. Who shall ascend the holy hill of the Lord. And who shall stand in the holy place. He who has clean hands and a pure heart. And does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. Uh, David also was humbled in that he wore a linen ephod, which is a priestly garment. He was saying, Today I'm not the king, you're the king. He came and he ministered before the Lord the same way that a priest would. So this was not the same place of, you know, he wasn't as distinguished a king over all things. He humbled himself to become. Just a, per, just a worshiper. Just a person that was coming before the Lord. And, with, um, and this actually bothered his wife. <laughs> We're not going to get into it probably because it's too late. But his wife despised him because he humbled himself. And that bothered her. But David was saying, you know what? I will celebrate. I will humble myself. Because before the Lord, I'm nothing. He's the king, I'm not the king. And even with his attitude of, I will celebrate, do we come here as we gather together with that same attitude of, I will celebrate before the Lord. David celebrated before the Lord with freedom, while his wife despised his passion for the Lord. And it's sad that sometimes, I, I know even people that I know that have grown up in churches where they've told them, if you are expressive in your worship, then you are doing it to get attention to yourself. And I wonder what they do with this text. <laughs> or even the woman with the allergy, that bar, jar that, that, that pours, you know, so much uh, uh, oil over Jesus. David was making much of God in his fullness of joy, being overjoyed that the presence of God was coming to his city and that he was going to be able to to experience the Lord and be led by the Lord and his people were going to have God in the center of their world. And his wife despised that and she made fun of that. So I ask us, let's be able to celebrate and and, and praise an extravagant God with extravagant praise because he's worthy of it. The biggest book in the Bible is the book of Psalms. And it teaches us to, to praise God uh, uh, expressionally. And if, if, if you're not sure, you can read the book of Psalms. So if we use the word of God to teach us how to do everything else in our lives, let's not let traditions get in the way of the way that God wants to be praised. God honored David because of his praise. So, anyway, I'm just going to finish here because we got a lot more to go. But like I said, you guys listen too slowly today. Just kidding. But I'm going to ask Keith if he wants to come up in the team. Let's look at a couple of, um, okay, this is frozen. All right, this is frozen, so I'm just going to read you know, some application points. I think that um, when we're talking about the tendencies toward either the holiness of God or being close to God, I think that we, number one, we need to become aware of which way we lean. And it's like, it, you, know, you know what's weird about it? Um, I don't know. I, I know people, I know the closest people to me, I know which way they lean. And it, it seems that everybody that leans more towards the intimacy side are people that they themselves tend to be more intimate. Or people that lead more to the holiness side, sometimes are people that tend to be judgmental. So if you think about it, we're actually, in a sense, making an idol of God if He's that looks more like us than anything else. I hope that makes sense, you know? So if if I tend to be this side, I say, oh no, God's this way. No, it's not that God's that way. It's that you're that way and you're more comfortable with those aspects of God. So if... So be aware of which way you lean. And I think the second point is that when you become aware which way you lean, then use the word of God to pull you towards the other side. Because God is both holy and he is intimate. And I think the third part, I want to again encourage us, let's be free to celebrate the Lord and give him the praise. That He is worthy of. Think about the thing, and you know everybody has different personalities. That's fine, but think about the thing that arouses the most celebration in you, whether sports or anything else, and ask in value whether Jesus is more valuable than that, and whether He deserves more celebration than than that does. I know He owes you sports, but maybe it's just that I'm shallow and. I love, I'm I'm turned on by sports, you know, but I, you know, I can easily just go, you know, I'm going to start doing that on Sundays. (laughs) Okay.